John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man named Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salaam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Then verse 35. Jesus heard that he had cast him out. Having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I want you to consider the following two scenarios. First scenario, you uh, and your husband have just moved to a new city. And you get there and you're having trouble connecting. A loneliness sets in. Nobody knows you. Nobody knows your history. Nobody knows how down you are and how isolated you're feeling. And then you get an email. An email from your in-laws saying, hey, we're, we're coming to visit. And you, you love your in-laws, and they're awesome. And so you get really excited. People are coming to visit us in this new city. So you start to plan out the weekend and the fun events you're going to do and how, where you're going to show them and show them all the places. And, but more than anything, you're just you're so thrilled and ecstatic that you're going to have your in-laws coming to stay at your house and be with you, and people can sit and talk to you where you can feel connected. Now, look, consider the second scenario. And this is, uh, this is years later. So you and your husband have children now. You have a number of young toddlers. And life has gotten really busy. And you're stressed. And you're exhausted. Your husband is working long hours at his job. You're not seeing each other a lot. It's produced marital strain. 
And yet you see in the midst of the busyness, you see this weekend that's coming where you have no travel schedule. Your husband's not traveling. Kids don't have soccer games and sports. It's an empty weekend. And so you, you, you have a date night coming. You're looking forward to this date night and you put it on the calendar and then you get an email from your in-laws. Now something's happened since you've had children. The relationship with your in-laws has changed quite a bit. You, you don't appreciate them as much or you don't love spending time with them as much. They've gotten a little bit possessive and a little bit kind of in your stuff with the kids. I'll just say it mildly. And they, they send you an email and they say, we're coming to visit and we're going to stay at your house and we can't wait because we haven't seen the grandkids in a long time. And this was the weekend that you had planned to connect and you're angry, and you're frustrated. You and your husband get in a fight over it. Now, what's interesting about those two scenarios is the same people are coming. They announce that they're coming. The same people are coming, but your response is drastically different. In the first scenario, it's, it's happiness and joy. In the second scenario, the same people are coming, but things have changed, and it's, it's frustration. It's anger. You don't really want them to come. Now, why is there a difference? Well, the reason you react differently is because how you respond to the coming depends on two key factors. One is your condition. In the first scenario, you were lonely and not happy. In the second condition or the second scenario, your condition was stress and exhaustion and frustration. Right? And so your condition is different, but also your perceived value of the person coming is different, right? In scenario one, it was a season where you longed for them to come. You were happy that they were gonna come. There was a perceived value of their presence in your home, but by the time we get to scenario two years later, that perceived value has changed quite a bit. What we see here in John 9, and this is so appropriate for the Advent season because the word Advent means coming. We look back at Jesus' first coming, we long for a second, but the word Advent means coming. How you respond to the coming of Jesus depends on those same two factors. Your condition, your heart condition, and second, your perceived value on the presence of Jesus. And we're gonna see Jesus in this miracle in John 9. He's gonna address both the condition of the people and then who he is. And through it, he's gonna show your condition of what he calls blindness. And then his presence, the miracle of sight that he gives and the value of his presence. So we're gonna look at both of those categories in answering this question, how do you respond to the coming of Jesus? Let's start with the first, the condition of blindness that Jesus describes through this miracle. And what I want you to see, and I'm being repetitive here, but the nature of your response to anything depends on your condition. Think about the doctor. When you go to the doctor's office, your awareness of your condition is gonna affect how you respond to your doctor's advice. If you believe you're sick, you're gonna respond a certain way to your doctor's advice. If you believe you're not sick, 
you're going to respond very differently to your doctor's advice. Same would be with a performance review by your boss. Depending on how you view your condition and performance is going to, is going to tell how you respond to your boss's advice. If you think you're knocking it out of the park in your vocation and you're performing at a high level, you're going to respond a certain way to your boss's advice. If you, are, if you know that you're just stinking it up, you're performing at a low level, you're going to respond very differently to your boss's advice coming out of a performance review. And it's the same here. The way that you respond, the way that your heart responds to Jesus depends on your awareness of your condition. And that's what Jesus is trying to drive home in this miracle in John 9. And he says your condition is one of blindness. But what is blindness? Well, the story starts with Jesus healing this man who is born blind. And immediately you see what happens. Jesus' disciples connect blindness, his blindness, with a particular sin in his life. They say, who sinned? Right? They, they are convinced that this man's blind because he did something wrong, he sinned, or since he was born blind, it must have been his parents then that sinned. And what's Jesus' answer? No. No. This man is blind, not because of an individual particular sin on his part, but because of capital S sin. Genesis 3, along with every other sickness and disease. And so look at the picture here. You have the disciples that are trying to solve this problem of brokenness. Blindness by trying to figure out why it's happening. And Jesus, in the ensuing dialogue, in the remainder of this chapter, is driving to something much deeper, a much deeper and more profound problem. And then he's going to talk about what he's going to do about it. So what's the deeper, more profound problem? Well, we see it in the response of the Pharisees to the healing. Right? So the man goes to the pool, he's healed, he comes back, and his neighbors are shocked to see this man. Is it really him? So they bring him to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the religious authorities of the day. And the Pharisees say, how'd you get healed? And he says, mud my eyes, washed, and now I see. And then look what they say in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was, a, there was a division among them. See, they were convinced because Jesus healed on the Sabbath that he wasn't from God. But because there was a division, they said, let's go check it out with the parents. So they call this man's parents to verify. And what do the parents say? They say, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was blind at birth. Yes, now he sees. And that's as far as they go, right? They say, why? I all we know, it's our son. He was blind, now he sees. And it says, because they were afraid, right? They, they didn't want to claim it was Jesus and get kicked out of the synagogue, right? So the Pharisees, now it's, now it's verified. So the Pharisees say, well, we got to pull him back in a second time. So they pull this blind man back in a second time, right? When they pull him back in, look what they say in verse 24. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. We know this man's a sinner, now you start to see this spiritual blindness that Jesus is talking about because the Pharisees are blind to who Jesus is and they refuse to acknowledge who he is in spite of mounting evidence. 
I mean, the evidence of this man's healing and therefore who Jesus must be is mounting and mounting. And they say, we don't know where he comes from. And now this is, this gets comical, right? The blind man, this, this unschooled blind beggar from birth, he starts to stick it to him a little bit, right? He says, you don't know where he came from. I was born blind and now I see. And then, he, and then he says, do you want to become his disciple? You know, now he really starts to chide him a little bit. And they say, we don't know where he came from. And then listen to what the blind man or the man who was blind said in verses 32 to 33. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, blind, of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Healing in the Old Testament of a blind man was extremely rare. Jewish tradition reports that only maybe a couple of times it happening, but it's never been reported that a man born blind receives his sight. And so the evidence before the Pharisees is mounting. And not only that, but they were so committed to their position, to their reputation, to their own pride that they ignored in the Old Testament the numerous times that the, 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 the prophets would say, you'll know the Messiah comes when the blind receive their sight. I'll give you a few examples in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 18, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I mean, the evidence is just mounting in front of the Pharisees and in their pride, they're unwilling to see Jesus for who he is. There's a, um, maybe you've experienced this, where you're interacting with someone and no matter how compelling the evidence is, they refuse to acknowledge the truth. Have you ever had that happen? Not too long ago, I had it happen with my four-year-old son. I sent him to his room for a timeout for disciplinary reasons. And he knows that when he goes to his room for disciplinary reasons, he is not to come out. So I send him to his room, close the door, come out, sit in the den. A couple minutes later, I hear the doorknob. I know the door's swinging open. And I'm just imagining him walking down the hall. So I give it about 30 seconds. I get up. I, I walk around the corner. And there he's standing in the hallway. We make eye contact. We stare at each other. And then he turns and runs back to his room and goes and jumps on his bed. So I walk in and I say, Isaac, you disobeyed daddy. You're not supposed to come out of your room. And he says, I didn't. And I said, son, do you remember being in that hallway 10 seconds ago? We made eye contact. I saw you standing in the hallway. And he said, no, you didn't. 
So I pressed a little further. I said, Isaac, look at me. I saw you in the hallway, son. You left your room. And he goes, no, I didn't. I mean, the, the, the evidence was mounting as compelling as could be. And he said, no. Would not acknowledge the truth. Listen to how F.F. Bruce explains what's going on here in John chapter 9, with the Pharisees particularly, with the mounting evidence before them of who Jesus is. Listen to how he illustrates it. In a gallery where artistic masterpieces are on display, it is not the masterpieces, but the visitors that are on trial. The works which they view are not there to abide their question, but they reveal their own taste or lack of it by their reactions to what they see. The pop star who was reported some years ago to have dismissed the Mona Lisa as a load of rubbish, except that he used a less polite word than rubbish, did not tell us anything about the Mona Lisa. He told us much about himself. What is true in the aesthetic realm is equally true in the spiritual realm. The man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment on himself, not on Christ. And this is what Jesus describes in verse 39 when he says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now, what do we learn by this? Sin is not just a wrong set of behaviors. Sin is blindness to the truth and a willingness to suppress the truth at all costs. In fact, Paul describes this in Romans chapter one when he talks about the unrighteousness of men or the sinfulness of men. He says in Romans 1.18, who by their unrighteousness or sinfulness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. What does this mean? It means that we not only do the wrong thing, but we adjust our vision of the moral universe so that we can label evil as good and good as evil. Our eyes, our ability to focus and see clearly is fuzzy because of sin. And I would just say to you this morning, wherever you're at in, in responding to Jesus Christ, that you need to understand that there is this, um, this proclivity in you because of sin to suppress the truth, to suppress it, to not acknowledge it, even in the face of mounting evidence, that that's what sin is. And of course, that leads to all kinds of behaviors. But there's this suppression of truth. So the question is then, who decides when the picture's in focus? Right? In our sin, we decide when the picture's in focus, but, but we don't have the ability to determine when it's in focus. And who brings the picture into focus for us? And that brings us to the second point, and that is the miracle of sight. Now, the way that Jesus heals this blind man is, it's intriguing. Look at verse 6. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and, and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. Now, why didn't Jesus just heal him? He could have snapped his fingers. Didn't even have to snap his fingers. He could have just healed him so the man could see. Why the mud? 
Why this pool of water? Well, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, Jesus' healings are not just raw displays of power, nor even just acts of kindness to an individual. They're signs, which means that his healings are always trying to communicate or always communicating something about who he is, something about his identity. And that's exactly what's happening here. So let's start with the mud. Why does he take the dust of the ground, mix it with a saliva and make mud and put it on the man's eyes? Well, many have made the connection here to Genesis chapter two, verse seven, in which the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's the creation account where it says that God used the dust of the ground right, to make the first man. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. So the same Jesus that, that used the dust of the ground to make the first man in the Genesis account is the same Jesus here that's using the dust of the ground again to recreate a man to give him sight, to recreate. So that's the significance of the mud. We've got recreation going on here in Jesus. Second, why the pool of Siloam? What's the significance there? Well, if you remember back a couple chapters ago in John 7, during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, once a year, God's people would, all around the region, would come into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. They'd set up their tents on the streets and it was to commemorate or remember their time in the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land when they would travel day by day, God leading them and set up their tents. And it was a time they would remember God's faithfulness and God's provision in the desert. At the end of the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles, there was this amazing water drawing ceremony. At the end of the week, the priest would leave the temple. He would walk down to the Pool of Siloam with the crowds following him, he'd take a pitcher, he'd fill up water from the pool of Siloam, he'd bring it back up to the temple, and he would pour it at the, the foot of the altar. And when he did that, the people would go crazy. They would start dancing and shouting and singing. And you say, why? It's just a pitcher of water. Because it was symbolic of the prophecy in Ezekiel 47. When God told the prophet Ezekiel, God's people were in an exile. Life was hard. There was no hope. And God told Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy about what? Water coming from the threshold of the temple. The temple being God's presence, his healing presence. Water coming from the temple that would be ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, then a river. And it says in Ezekiel 47, that water would flow down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea that could support no life because of the high salt content no fish, no plants on the shore. And it says that when the water, when this water would rush down into the Dead Sea, that life would come about. That fish and aquatic life and plants would come about. So put those two together and you see exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate here with this healing. By the mud, he's saying, I am, I am recreating men and women. And by the pool of Siloam, he's saying, I am that living water. And where I go, guess what? Life sprouts up. That real change happens. That lives are changed. That hope comes. That things really change when Jesus brings life. Like he did here 
with this healing. And so what I want you to see is that, that Jesus is healing this man, but don't just see it as, oh, that's nice. I'm, this man got his sight. No, Jesus is communicating something much deeper. And that is that you'll notice that the blind man gets healed twice, not once. Do you notice that? He gets healed twice. The first one is obvious. He receives his physical sight. But Jesus does a second healing to this blind man that gets at the very deep, profound core of the problem, and that is spiritual blindness. He not only opens his physical eyes, but he opens his spiritual eyes. You realize that, that in the, all of the dialogue between the blind man and the Pharisees, the blind man had still not seen Jesus. When he came back from the pool of Siloam with his eyes open so he could physically see, when he got back, Jesus was gone. All that was left was his neighbors. Now, he had obviously in the healing heard that this man Jesus was doing it. That's why he could say it was some man Jesus. But in the whole dialogue with the Pharisees, he had never laid his eyes on Jesus. And so what happens? The Pharisees, because they're, they're ticked off at him, you know, he's kind of shown them up. They, they kick him out of the synagogue. Now, we yawn at that. Yeah, he got kicked out of the synagogue. You realize to get kicked out of the synagogue in that day, you got kicked out of social life. You got kicked out of religious life. You became an absolute outcast. You could argue that this blind man, even with his sight now, is in a worse place than when he was physically blind and begging in the temple. At least when he was physically blind and begging in the temple, he received gifts, right? He received charity. Now he has his physical sight and he gets kicked out of the synagogue. Utter rejection, left on his own, and Jesus, when he finds out that he'd gotten kicked out, he comes to him. He comes to him. Why? Because the healing wasn't complete. His physical sight was good, but that wasn't enough. And so look what he says to the, to the man in verse 35. Do you believe in the son of man? The man says, who is it? So I might believe. And then look what Jesus says in verse 37. You have seen him. I'm, You've seen him. For the first time in his life, he's laying his eyes on Jesus. You've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And then look at the man's response. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The word for worship here means to prostrate oneself before someone. That's the word here. So this is literally what happened. He said, Lord, I believe, and he laid down, face down on the ground before Jesus. That's the sight. You can't even see me right now. He's on the ground, face down before Jesus. Now, what's striking about this is that you say, wasn't he joyful when he got his physical sight? Probably so. I mean, I imagine he was thrilled to death to get his physical sight. John doesn't record anything of what he experienced when he got his physical sight. But when this man's spiritual eyes were opened, his most passionate response to the two healings is to the second healing, when his spiritual eyes are opened and he sees Jesus Christ for who he is and his spiritual blinders are removed 
And now I want you to imagine the scene. You gotta imagine this scene right now. Verse 40 says the Pharisees were standing around. They were standing around hearing the blind man and Jesus talk. And so here's the scene. You've got Jesus standing there. You've got the blind man who is prostrate on the ground, stretched out before Jesus, and the Pharisees standing in utter pride over the entire situation. So you've got the Pharisees in utter pride standing in judgment over Jesus. And you've got the blind man in utter humility sprawled out on the ground before Jesus. Now, with that picture in your mind, now read verse 39 again. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see, those who think they see, those who think they have the categories figured out, those that that stand on the seat of judgment to determine what's right and wrong, those that have it all figured out, Jesus says, may become blind. He's describing the scene of a blind man in utter humility before Jesus and of the Pharisees standing in utter pride over Jesus. N.T. Wright explains this scene this way. Listen to what he says. The Pharisees have constructed a system within which they will never see that they are wrong. Now, let me say that again. The Pharisees have constructed a system within which they will never see that they are wrong. It is one thing to be genuinely mistaken and to be open to new evidence, new arguments, new insights. It's another to create a closed world like a sealed room into which no light, no fresh air can come from outside. You see, pride is nothing more than self-sufficiency. Pride is an independent spirit that stands in judgment over Jesus and everyone else, or at least that stands in pride with no need for Jesus. The blind man here exhibits just the opposite of a dependent spirit that is dependent on Jesus to complete him. I mean, this man's met his maker. He's met the man who takes away his sin. He's met the man who accepts him when everyone else has rejected him. He's met the man who gives him purpose and meaning. Those in humility don't claim to see on their own or are given new eyes to see Jesus. Those who in pride claim to see on their own remain in their blindness, unable to see Jesus. Paul Tripp, he describes in his book, uh, Awe, he describes the the story that he remembers of taking his youngest son uh, to the National Art Galleries in Washington, D.C. And listen to what he describes when he took his son there. As we made our approach, I was so excited about what we were going to see. He, his son, was decidedly unexcited. But I just knew that once inside, he would have his mind blown and would thank me for what I had done for him that day. As it turned out, his mind wasn't blown. It wasn't even activated. 
I saw things of such stunning beauty that brought me to the edge of tears. He yawned, moaned, and complained his way through gallery after gallery. With every new gallery, I was enthralled, but each time we walked into a new art space, he begged me to leave. He was surrounded by glory, but saw none of it. He stood in the middle of wonders, but was bored out of his mind. His eyes worked well, but his heart was stone blind. He saw everything, but saw nothing. In humility, would you admit your true condition? Admit your true condition. Believe in Jesus, the source of truth, truth himself. And have him open your eyes to the truth of who he is and of who you are and what you're made for and experience the joy of being given sight, spiritual sight. Let's pray. Father, we confess. We confess our blindness. We confess our pride. And it blinds us to our need for you, Jesus. We confess our independent spirits. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes the miracle of sight, of spiritual sight. We have all kinds of, of physical ailments. And Lord, we pray often for, the, for healing of those physical ailments. And, and, and yet, oftentimes, we miss the biggest, most deepest, profound problem that we have. And that we are, we are spiritually blind. So Father, like this blind man in this story who received his sight, but more than that, received his spiritual sight, which caused him to sprawl out face first on the ground before your son Jesus. Would we have a similar posture that we, with our eyes open, would see the glory of you, Jesus, King Jesus on the throne ascended, that gives our life purpose and in meaning, that transcends all of the, the hurt and the brokenness and the distraction and all that we're facing, that in the midst of all of that, that life would sprout, that joy would come forth because, Jesus, you open our eyes to see. So, Holy Spirit, would you give us that humility? And as we come to your table this morning to enjoy a meal that is a foretaste of the meal we'll taste in the new heavens and the new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb when our physical eyes will see you, Jesus. Would you do now in this moment 
in this Lord's Supper, what you intended to happen, Jesus, when you instituted this sacrament, that until our physical eyes see you in glory, that now, through this meal and the working of your Holy Spirit, that our spiritual eyes would see you in glory. And that our lives would be lifted out of the miry pit. And that we would be seated you in the heaven, and within you in the heavenly realms and receive the honor of being your children. So Father, would you open our eyes in this meal to see you in all your glory. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.